Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, the weekly Star Trek Discovery podcast. And since there is no more Discovery, we're going to talk about how amazing Black Panther was, right, Bree? Uh, oh my god, it was so cool. <laughs> but no, we actually are talking about Star Trek, although Black Panther was amazing. Oh, well, it's going to be a short one then. <laughs> I didn't prep for that. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the Black Panther Star Trek crossover we've always dreamed of. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Great. We have passed the end of Season 1 with Star Trek Discovery. The finale aired over a week ago. But it left us with a lot of questions, a lot of thoughts, and a lot of hopes about the series, the franchise, and the future. And we're here today to look back on Season 1 and look ahead to Season 2. You know what, Ken? I think one of the biggest questions right now on our listeners' minds, who are these people that are talking to me? Well, my name is Ken Gagney, and I am your co-host, and joining me is you, yeah, I'm Sabriel Mastin. Hi. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Doing great. Let's talk about Black Panther. Oh, wait, no, we started that. <laughs> so if you are listening to us for the first time, then maybe you are also interested in getting into Star Trek Discovery. You can find all 15 episodes and binge watch them in a free one-week trial of CBS All Access, the exclusive distributor of the show here in the United States, at our affiliate link, which is transporterlock.com slash CBS. Check it out. Yeah, please do. And then you can complain about CBS All Access after you watch it, <laughs> just like we did. And after you binge watch Star Trek Discovery, you can binge listen Transporter Lock. Yeah, you totally should do that. Totally. <laughs> all right. And then you'll be all equipped to listen to this fantastic conversation we're about to have. Sabriel, I'd like to start off with a softball. Let's see how we do with this one. All right. Out of season one of Star Trek Discovery, all 15 episodes, which one was your favorite? Oh, my gosh. I think... It was, I, I couldn't tell you specifically, but some of the scenes from the realization that we're in the Mirror Universe right when we came back from the season break. So that would be season one, episode 10, Despite Yourself. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. The... I've always been a big fan of the Mirror Universe. I know a lot of people despise it or don't like it, but I think it's cool. What is there to not like about the Mirror Universe? I know, right? But a lot of people just think it's cheesy. I mean, a lot of people don't like Ferengi either, and they're kind of weird. But like, I don't think the mirror universe is cheesy or doesn't make any sense. And, well, it's Star Trek. I mean, <laughs> come on. Well, I think the first appearance of the things you just mentioned, true, they didn't go over very well. Like, all the TNG episodes of the Ferengi were not that great. But once they got recognized not as a villain but as comic relief and gained prominence on DS9 where their culture was fleshed out, I thought they were great. Yeah, a lot of people still don't. I, I disagree with them. Well, I mean, they can say the same thing about the first appearance of the Mirror Universe on TOS, which admittedly was very cheesy and overacted, just like most things <laughs> William Shatner's in. It's true. It's true. I mean, that was, that was the 60s. Right. And now here we are 52 years later, and after fleshing out the Mirror Universe on both DS9 and Enterprise, I think it's finally come into its own, as well as, as you mentioned, so many novels that have been published, so many anthologies that I thought were just wonderful. Yes, yes. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I would also say Despite Yourself may have been my favorite episode because it also introduced us to Captain Killy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
But since you already claimed that episode as your favorite, I'm going to throw out another one and go with Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, also uh-huh. known as the Groundhog Day episode. <laughs> that was a fantastic episode. That was so much fun. Yeah, it was the first time we get to see Harry Mudd as really a principal player. He was in a previous episode this season, but only in a few small scenes, whereas here he was actually the villain. And I also liked the unique perspective that they use. Usually you see Groundhog Day being told from the perspective of the one person who knows that they're repeating time, as in the movie Groundhog Day. But here we saw Michael Burnham, for whom each iteration was new and she had no memory. And so I liked that twist on Groundhog Day. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, now, now you're making me think, like, oh, that might have been one of the fun ones, like seeing all the ways that Lorca died. And it turns out it was justified. I know, right? Oh, my gosh, I didn't even thought of that. I'm sure that episode is even funner now that we know what a villain he is. Seriously. I think we'll have to do a rewatch and then of all these episodes at some point and kind of, like, with the knowledge of what we know now and like, examine each episode because, you know, that wouldn't be a fun one. Like, oh my god, Harry Mudd had him right the whole time. <laughs> Did you have a least favorite episode? I think it was the actually right before the season ending where we were on the planet where they're trying to figure out the cloaking technology. I think you're referring to Civis Pachem Parabellum. That's it, where we were on this planet with Saru. Saru, Ash, and Burnham are on a planet trying to fig- use the tech or the, the whatever, the, the magic planet stuff. The crystalline tower. Yeah, to figure out the Klingon stuff. And it was one of my favorite Saru episodes because we learned so much about him. We got to see the pain that he suffered through. But overall, it just did not feel good. Kind of, this episode kind of left me wanting. I felt like, all right, we're going to have something happen? No. We're going to have something happen? No. Which is a really bummer because Kristen Bayer, one of my favorite Star Trek Voyager authors, she's done a number of things. And this episode, just other than the Saru parts where we got to see his emotions, this one kind of fell flat for me. And I was actually watching it with a friend who introduced me to Kristen Byers' work, and she, uh, she kind of, I think she felt the same way, at least at the time. Like, we were both watching this together because I was in California, and we were watching this like, well, that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like this episode because I don't feel like we needed another reason for Saru to hate Michael Burnham. I felt like getting Captain Georgiou killed was enough. And in the end of the season, there are a couple of times where we hear Saru refer to Burnham as my friend, and he's quite friendly with her. I felt like it would have been enough of an arc for them to resolve their differences had Georgiou dying been the only pain she had brought upon him. This mm-hmm. episode, it just seemed like too much, and then it became too soon for them to be friendly just a few episodes later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't hate the episode. It was just my least favorite. Right. Right. There is no bad Trek. There's just better Trek. <laughs> Let's not say things we will regret. In the future. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to bring Shades of Grey up now. <laughs> you know, common on Voyager, a lot of people bring up... Um, threshold? Threshold. But honestly, I don't hate that episode. It's just goofy Star Trek. No, it doesn't make any sense, but neither does the heirloom candle where... Beverly Crusher has sex with someone. Yeah, Sub Rosa. That is right up there as one of the worst episodes. Uh huh. And so, eh. (laughs) I don't don't hate Threshold. Well, I'm not sure Threshold can say the same for us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, I have a personal uh, loose end that I realized I finally figured out what I was going to mention last week. Go for it. During the last episode, we saw a Klingon with two streams as he's peeing. They have two of everything. 
uh-huh. And I, I thought it's hilarious that they kept up with that continuity. <laughs> but that was uh, my personal loose end. But uh, as for Discovery as a whole, beginning of the season, I don't know what they're thinking, but we, we they didn't follow through on the noticing black insignia on some of the Starfleet uh, security guards. Yes, that is something Burnham noticed the very third episode, the first one where she's aboard the Discovery. We never really found out what was up with that. No, and some people speculated maybe it was, oh goodness, what's his, what's his name, the original showrunner, um, Brian Fuller. Fuller. Yep, something they were going to do with there, and they decided to change their mind partway through and just kind of forget that, which seems odd. I mean, at the time, I remember we were theorizing that maybe it's a Section 31 ship. Yeah, and you know, maybe they still had a part in it, but that never came into fruition. And we saw a number of other black insignias later, uh, just on Starfleet uniforms, like people are wearing their flak jackets or something like that. Right, and that supposedly would tie in with the black alert, but not really. Yeah, so if there's anything, they either forgot about it, or they planted some seeds at the very beginning, and we're going to wait some more time to find out what that is. Also, wasn't the black alert evidenced also by water floating in the air? Yeah, we seem to have forgotten that too, and some speculation is it was because it was still the test version of the thing from before. Uh, Stamets made his discovery. They found the tardigrade, yeah. Yeah, so maybe? Question mark? (laughs) (laughs) Or they forgot about it again. Hmm. So you brought up the Klingons, and I have a question about them. In Discovery, Burnham made a heartfelt argument in favor of saving the Klingons and not committing genocide. Because even though they were willing to destroy humanity, the Klingons were, that didn't justify us abandoning our principles and destroying them completely. Mm Mm-hmm. In the Voyager finale, Endgame, spoiler alert, Admiral Janeway infects the Borg with a virus, and at the end of that episode, we don't know for sure whether or not the Borg survived that attack. I mean, because this is after Star Trek First Contact and everything else that happened on TNG. Mm -hmm. So for all we know, they utterly annihilated the Borg. So why is genocide okay against the Borg, but not against Klingons? And it's not the first time we thought about considering genocide against the Borg. Right, because the, the I-Hugh episode, was it? Yeah. Or I-Borg? I-Borg. Oh, it had Hugh on it. We know right. that. Oh, that's yeah. right. I-Borg, yeah. And yeah, and that's not the first time we contemplated it with uh, genocide. But you know what? Uh, Janeway was a rogue agent. Admiral Janeway was. Yeah. But Captain Janeway went along with the plan. Yeah, who knows? Maybe she was just finally broken and she wanted to get her family home. I had to get Shari on this. She's, she used to do a Voyager podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but back to the Klingons, it's it's another one of, okay, you know what? Cisco did this too. Uh, he destroyed basically a planet. He made it uninhabitable, but there was nobody yeah. on it yet. Yeah. And just to draw a point across, you know, and, and he never seemed to get any kind of punishment from that. So Starfleet seems to be okay with this when they are in danger, or at least the people who call the shots, which is... And then, but then, you know, that always gives the situation for our hero to say, no, we have to do this. We have to do the right thing instead of the bad thing. Except nobody said no to Cisco. Everybody aboard the Defiant was shocked, yep. but they followed his commands. Uh-huh. But I mean, in most situations, it's basically a plot device where Starfleet's like, oh, God, we're all going to die. All right, let's do something about this. And then someone's like, no, we have to hold on to our humanity. Because that was not the case in Endgame. The Borg were not a threat nope. at, in that moment. They were not taking the initiative and in attacking the Federation. Voyager went to them. Yeah, you know, I think it was one of the biggest problems with Voyager is that we didn't have more after mm. to see the repercussions. 
There was a great Reddit thread where somebody proposed that Endgame should have been like the fourth or fifth to last episode in Voyager, and with the following episodes looking at how they acclimate back to being home. Oh, yeah. I mean, Janeway has a debriefing that she has to go through. Right. Like, all the questionable decisions that she made while out there. And all that future technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The beta, the beta universe, the beta canon, the book universe, the novel universe covers this very well. Janeway did have a tough debriefing <laughs> as Starfleet basically ripped everything that Voyager did and then shoved it back out there. <laughs> but here you go. We undid everything you figured out. Thanks for the tech. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have to observe the temporal prime directive after all. Yeah, I guess you can see that. But So speaking of time travel, that's another question I have, mm-hmm. which is that we see a lot of technology in Discovery that we've never seen before, most notably the Spore Drive. We see a design aesthetic that is far more advanced than any other Star Trek because it's the most recent one to be developed for television. Did this show really need to be set 10 years before Kirk, or could it have been set post-Voyager? With any track, you can almost sit it anywhere and be okay, as long as it's not in the very near future to us personally, because they're always going to be able to hand wave some of the tech. I mean, even Enterprise, which was the, we're 100 years before Kirk, still had, instead of tractor beams, we had grappling hooks. We still had transporters and all this jazz. Like, you can really honestly set any, almost any Star Trek series anywhere. The difficulty with going beyond Voyager is you have some super amazing tech that's basically magic squared, magic cubed, compared to if, if like, TNG era was just magic, space magic, if we went beyond that, all of a sudden it's space magic to the fifth power, because it's because it's so fantastical that it's hard to keep going beyond that, and so Discovery could have, but it's fine where it's at. (laughs) Well, the spore drive is what I would classify as magical, and I don't see how... If you took Discovery exactly as it is and moved it to immediately after Voyager, I don't think there would need to be any visual or technology changes. I think it would fit just fine. Yeah, it could. It could. I mean, you could almost, except for Enterprise, you could totally fit, fit it there. I mean, almost any of the series there, because it's what they can do. They're always able to reroute some power, come up with something to uh, have the deflector dish do. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that future ships have that Discovery does not really is a holodeck. Yeah. You know, their weapons, their transporter, pretty much everything works just as well as it does 100 years later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we wouldn't have to face all these continuity issues like, well, how come we've never heard before about Spock's sister, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> eh. Well, that's actually another question I have is not only does Discovery need to be set when it's set, but does Sarek need to be Sarek? Couldn't he have just been a Vulcan? I mean, there's nothing it could have totally been. Like, just some, some Vulcan uh, who adopted someone. But, you know, it helps the fans kind of connect between series. Like, why would a Vulcan take care of a human if it wasn't Sarek? Because Sarek is, as far as we know, the first one to marry a human. Because he's a human lover. Yeah. Ugh. But also, the same fans that it appeals to are the same fans likely to be disgruntled about it and ask, how come we've never heard about Burnham before? And, you know, people did. But really, I mean, people are going to be unhappy no matter what. There's always going to be those nitpickers out there. And so if you can just do a decent job, do get most of it right, I think you're okay. What about how different this Sarek is from the other Sareks we've seen? I mean, this guy, he seems a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more emotional. Also, he was like part of a strike team that the Admiral was leading where he's supposed to be an ambassador. Uh uh I think they would have had it 
fewer continuity issues that way as well had it been a Vulcan that they could make from whole cloth. I mean, we don't know that TOS Sarek wasn't like that when he wasn't on Enterprise. Here he had to make sure he showed off because his kid was there. He had to be good. And he all of a sudden has this, you know, twin brother who's a Romulan that... <laughs> right, right. You're, yeah, I mean, yeah. not, you're not, you're talking not really, about the actor really. playing yeah. two different roles. Not that he yeah. actually had a twin brother. Correct. Right. But we, we, don't, we don't know what he was like when he wasn't on the ship. He had Spock here who he had a rough relationship with. And you know what? You're going to act differently when you're around someone like that. That's true. It's just hard to imagine this same Sarek being Mark Leonard 10 years later on the journey to Babel. For me, not so much. But to each their own. Oh, okay. And that actually brings up the last question I have about the first season of Star Trek, which is, as you said, there are going to be people who hate it. There are going to be people who complain. I personally have not encountered them. They seem to be quite virulent across the internet on Reddit and Facebook. Have you encountered these groups, these individuals? You know, I've only ever seen a few people on Reddit, and that was the first few episodes. And mostly it's people generally seem to like it. I know Enterprise got a lot more hate for years until recently, actually, which is really weird. But Discovery seems to have latched on. Like, most people seem to like it when they give it a shot. Uh, like, my partner, she actually did not like it. So I, I started watching the series with her a few months ago, and she's like, oh, this is kind of dark. I don't like my sci-fi very dark, or my fantasy very dark. And so she decided not to keep going. And so there are people who it doesn't appeal to, but haters? I, I haven't really seen any. Yeah, I've seen a few people on Facebook complain, but when they're complaining in a Star Trek fan group, they don't tend to last very long. <laughs> also true. But the question I actually have is that the complaint about Discovery that I hear most often when there are those seldom complaints is that Star Trek Discovery is not Star Trek enough. What do you think they mean by that? Uh, they don't have enough politics talking. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very much what Next Generation was. Yep. Uh, and, and some of the movies, and to some extent, the original series movies, like, yeah, a lot of people have their own idea of what Star Trek is and it is not. But, you know, they said the same thing about um, the reboot movies. It's not Star Trek, to the point where even The Onion made fun of them. <laughs> where Onion is making jokes, literally, about these fans who uh, are upset that there's not hours of hours of trade negotiations and diplomatic channels going being brought through. But to a lot of people, Star Trek isn't about action, despite there being action all over the place in Star Trek. I do feel like there are times in Star Trek where the action is misplaced because it's not what we expect. Like in Star Trek Nemesis, where they take that dune buggy across the desert planet. Uh-huh. You know, that's not what I want to see Captain Picard doing. I want him to be you know, issuing a very diplomatic and impassioned plea why we should or should not do something about how the Prime Directive is not just a good idea, it's the right one or whatever. Agreed. There are weird oddities like that, like... Sure, Picard. Maybe maybe after he got a little younger from the Sona planet, or excuse me, the Baku planet, um, some of the young vigor in him came back and he wanted to relive some of his youth. But, uh, I mean, that is a little weird seeing Picard run around on a dune buggy. I, I have no, no, no arguments there. Right. But, uh, to completely say, like, something isn't Star Trek is such a weird argument to me. And I've had people do that before. And I just cannot where they're coming from at all. Yeah, because Star Trek is an entire universe. There are many things that Star Trek encompasses, and it can't be all things all at once. Uh-huh. So you can be ponderous and be the next generation and be beloved. You can be episodic and be TNG. You can be surreal and be DS9. And I have to imagine that the complaints they're making about Discovery are the same complaints they made about DS9. Oh, yeah. I'm, I, I, I don't know about the DS9 complaints, but because I was, really wasn't on the internet that much, 
At least I was, but not to the point where looking at Star Trek and people complaining about it. Right. But yeah, I mean, you can totally say there. It's not Star Trek because it literally was the first time Star Trek showed humans are not perfect in a extended form. Right. The main complaint I remember hearing about DS9 was that it wasn't a ship and didn't go anywhere. <laughs> which is a ridiculous complaint because Cheers never went anywhere. Night Court never went anywhere. Nobody complained about that. I'll have you know Cheers eventually went somewhere. They went to Diane's apartment. And so, one time they went to uh, Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And, and they even went to Jeopardy. <laughs> they did. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I, I just, I, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I just thought that was absurd. Because one of the things I loved about DS9 was what I felt was a revolving cast and crew where people were coming and going and being recast and dying and being born. You didn't really see that on other Star Treks. No, no. Uh, this gave opportunity to really focus on three races, uh, mostly two, humans, Pejorans, and Cardassians. Right. And also changelings and, as you said, to a yep. degree, Klingons. And even yeah. the Romulans were gotten there. And the Breen and everybody else. And the Ferengi. Right. And the Ferengi. Like, we got to examine all these races still, even though we didn't go anywhere, hy- hypothetically. I mean, we, we also went to the Gamma Quadrant. I was just going to say, I think the show did sort of kick it up a level when they added the Defiant. Yeah, and I think that was intentional. Like, oh, we need to get these people going somewhere. Let's uh, make up this bit where between seasons two and three, uh, Cisco took a break and all of a sudden, oh, that's right, he's a really good engineer and he helped design the ship in a few months. Sure. <laughs> well, I think it does make sense that if you're going to launch an entire series about a space station that's on the edge of an unknown frontier, that you give the crew a means to go there. Besides just runabouts that they dramatically change the size of between TNG and DS9. Right, because in TNG, I think their runabouts even had, like, dining rooms. Oh, yeah, dining room and bedrooms. And <laughs> and now they really were just large shuttlecraft. <laughs> so that's pretty much all I have to say about Season 1 of Discovery. I want to look forward to Season 2, but before we go there, is there anything else you want to look back on? Oh, yeah, I had a few things. Like I mean, We kind of touched a little bit on these last week, some of these, but um, I was thinking more like about Zhou Zhao. What about her? And like, where is she going to go? As the clothing, some facts about her, like we know she despises the other races that are not humans. So I was thinking, like, where would she go? And unless she gets over that, she's only going to go to human places, unless she wants to go solo. And oh, we know she despises the Federation and all that it stands for. And who else did we see during Discovery that despises the Federation and all that it stands for? Harry Mudd. Yes. And so right now, Harry Mudd's stuck with his wife on a. Uh, Whatever planet, but you know what? That opens a possibility of those two working together on something. Georgiou would slaughter him. I think so, after if he got annoyed. Unless, you know, there's a reason to keep him alive. Obviously, there would be because he stays alive, but... I can't imagine anything that he would have to offer her unless it's some sort of an alien technology, which has probably been repossessed by this point. Exactly. He's got all this connection, all these connections. We saw him all of a sudden time travel with weird time crystals. And what about that? What do you think her goal would be? Oh, who knows? I mean, they could do plot of the week where she needs to get something or stop something, or maybe she wants to destroy Beta Z again. I mean, I mean depending on how much she remembers from from when the Defiant was stuck in the Mirror Universe, she knows what's going. She has the potential to know what's going to happen in the universe for the next ten years or so. And that's something that we forgot to bring up last week, which was that the ship's records from the USS Defiant are from the Prime Universe's future. Yeah. And so, if the Emperor and the captains of the Mirror Universe had access to those logs, then she knows the next 10 years of history of the Prime Universe. Yeah, so depending on how much she remembers, like she, she can do a lot. 
Right, and it's a marvel that that didn't come up when she almost destroyed the Klingons, because she would have known whether or not the Klingons were going to be destroyed. You know, maybe that's why she just gave up so easily. She's like, ah, I know how history goes. We can't change things. So she's like, whatever, here we go. She gave up because she knew it was her destiny? Yeah. I don't know. That's, I, I don't hate know predestination. <laughs> I mean, I mean, who knows? Or maybe she would have like, ah, I know this wasn't going to work when I tried this last time. Because <laughs> I know I tried this last time. <laughs> because it's in the history books. Yeah. Oh, my God. So I have a headache. <laughs> Weird is part of the job. Indeed. What else you got about season one? The war's over. So what's Discovery going to do? Does it get a five-year mission? Well, do you wish that the war had lasted longer, kind of like the Dominion War did? Eh, wish it was like needed. I mean, if they can make the good stories, it can last as long as it wants, like the Korea War and MASH. I, I felt like the resolution to the Klingon War felt a little forced. It did. It could have gone longer, could have gone more episodes, or we could have just had a longer episode. The last few episodes of the season were kind of short. I felt like the season could have been more than 15 episodes. Yeah. And I felt like the season started with a lot of insight into Klingon culture, and then that sort of naturally disappeared once we went into the Mirror Universe, and we didn't get much of it when we got back. No, and they kept saying that it was gonna play, or it's going to pay off, and I don't know that it felt like it ever did. You mean that the payoff has already come? Oh, no, that it was going to happen in the last half. I remember reading that somewhere. I don't remember if this was an official source. I could have sworn it was, but uh, something like, yeah, 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 it's all going to be cool. But we hardly saw the Klingons in the second half, other than... Uh, Laurel getting rid of Vogue's mind and Laurel getting her butt kicked. And then we saw, and we were on Kronos for a bit, but that's pretty much the extent of Klingon culture. We got to see a bunch of Klingon and Orion culture in those few minutes, you know, in that 45 minutes, but we didn't get to examine it at all. Oh, I think the implication is Laurel is in charge now. Is Emperor the right word or would the Klingons use something more like Chancellor? Chancellor, Chancellor, don't they? Yeah, Chancellor Martok. I wonder who the first Chancellor was, or if Lorel would be the one to unify the houses and institute that role. Uh, it's possible. I mean, Klingons are pretty uh, traditional, so who knows how much, how long ago they made that uh, title. Are we to understand that the 24 houses were previously united at some point in Klingon history? I th- think so. Under Kalos? Maybe under Kalos. I mean, at some point they were, and then it almost seems like it was relatively recent, and I don't want to say like 10 years, but in a Klingon history where they weren't. And I, I don't have, I really know why I just had that feeling. Like it felt relatively recently that they were not united. And whatever happened to that beacon of light ship or whatever? Uh, didn't that get destroyed? At the Battle of the Binary Stars? No, at the... They destroyed that in um the preseason episode, or pre-season, the pre-break episode, didn't they? Oh, that was the Barge of the Dead ship. Yeah, same ship. Is it? Oh, wait, no, 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 no. Torchbearer. I was, I was confusing because I had Torchbearer in my head. Because they were talking about, who's going to be the Torchbearer? They sent the Torchbearer to this little artifact. From the Ship of the Dead. That's it. Yep. So the Ship of the Dead was around. So they were different ships. Yeah. No, yep, you're right. I, I was confusing because, like, well, yeah, the Torchbearer was on there in my head. Right. And so, nope, nope. You had it right. It was just me uh, getting confused because I was focusing on that role. So I'm wondering where that beacon ship came from and what happened to it. Maybe it's still there. Maybe it's gone. Because it was enough to unify the 24 houses in the Battle of the Binary Stars, but yeah. now they're just going to say, eh, it wasn't enough of a call, and we'll just ignore it and fight amongst ourselves again. I mean, we don't know. They, they never brought that up, so there's another loose end. I guess, I don't know if it's an important loose end. Probably not. I think every loose end we've brought up will never be heard from again. <laughs> kind of like the Black Badges on Discovery. We'll just never I mean, it's very possible. see that again. It's possible. 
you know, you know what will happen is like 50 years from now, some other Star Trek show will incorporate that and make it canon. And like, oh my god, remember that? Kind of like how there are two different colors of Andorians, or kind of like how Spock had a pet as a kid. <laughs> or uh, now Enterprise looks a little different yet again. Right. How come the Klingons look different? How come some have smooth Ugh. heads and some have bumpy heads? Let's take 50 years to figure that one out. I know I said earlier that I think traditionally, for the most part, little changes I didn't mind, but I still don't like the look of the new Klingons. But you do like the language. Yeah, I gained respect for that once I learned about how it was developed. But uh, the new look, I still don't get behind. I was actually just watching some uh, Enterprise where it had Klingons. It was the one with Rurapente on it, and where Archer is sent there. And a whole bunch of Klingons like, oh, no, this this still feels right. <laughs> you know who I think spoke Klingon the best in this show was Ash Tyler. Yeah, he, he really brought a lot to that. I thought it was both guttural and fluid, so I think it combined the best of both worlds, just like he does. I agree. I think he did a wonderful job. Great. Even though I still did not like the character by the end of the series. <laughs> Do you think we'll see him again? Uh, Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think he and Burnham have some unfinished business? Uh, I think they seal, close that off, but he'll be back, and he'll be back. Because if he does show up, it's going to be awkward for him and Burnham. <laughs> yep. I think he'll be back. So speaking of people coming back, shall we look ahead to season two? Yeah, so Tilly. What about her? We got the, the green little spore in her. Yellow green spore. That's right. We had that little speck fall into her shoulder, and which did not come up again at all in season one. No, they specifically said somewhere like right after that, like, yeah, season two. So huh. I wasn't waiting for it. What do you think the implications of that spore will be? Oh, uh, it could be so much. Maybe she'll invent the Iconian gateways to, and then do some time travel stuff and give it to I, I, it's so oh God. It, there's so many possibilities that we probably haven't even thought of or could never think of because they could literally take it anywhere like she gains the ability to run the spore drive herself or just like just like Stamets or even though it's, it's not whatever or she'll be able to do it in clutch they implied that humans will not be piloting the spore drive anymore yeah Starfleet says a lot of things we're not going to kill any we're not going to do mass genocide and <laughs> For example? I don't know. I feel like we've seen the end of the spore drive. I, I, I feel like we have, but unless they needed to pull it out in a clutch or situation, they'll come up with some tech way to do it. But I think we're done with that. Yeah, I think that maybe Tilly will develop some sort of mutant-like powers, like Nightcrawler, where she can teleport herself through the mycelial network. I don't think we'll see her operating any large machinery anytime soon. Okay, so we need to figure out, like, what, what, okay, something's probably going to enhance what she can already do. Maybe she'll talk even more. <laughs> she'll talk more. She'll, you know, like lead. Like, you know, she'll be very commanding. Probably going to, if it does anything to her psychologically, it's probably going to enhance what she already, was already there. Do you think that her being on the command track means she has to go back to Starfleet or leave the Discovery at all? Oh, no. She'll be, uh, she'll be just in the officer role. Maybe she'll even get some bridge time like Harry Kim. That'd be cool. Because only good things came to Harry Kim. <laughs> You know, he did not die as much as people think. <laughs> Here's a question for season two. Do you want it to be more episodic than season one? I'm okay if they go the same route. I, I really liked what they did. I liked the dramatic, you know, making it all tie in together. And I like that route. So I don't have, if, if it, it did go, go more episodic, I wouldn't mind, but it's not a need at all. Like, however they go with it, as long as the stories are good. And I like, I mean, I'll probably like it. So you kind of wanted to pull a Buffy or a Flash where each season has a different big bad? I mean, that's cool. <laughs> I just watched Legend of Korra and they did that and it worked well. 
Didn't work so well for season three of Enterprise. <laughs> no, I still I like that season. A lot of people hate that, but I liked it. You know what? And I would have to watch it again. I've only seen each episode of Enterprise once, but some of my fondest memories of Enterprise are from season three and season four. Seasons one and two are just sort of a blur to me. The whole temporal Cold War. Yeah, they kind of dropped that. I've been watching, rewatching here and there, and yeah, season. There's a lot of not so great episodes in season one and seasons one and two, but you know there are some good ones too. They they do really well with showing life on the ship. It's just people being people, and I really like that about Enterprise. Yeah, we weren't quite evolved as a species yet. Yeah. Because that's only 100 years from now. Uh-huh. I can't wait. <laughs> we'll be there. <laughs> so who do you think the captain of the Discovery will be in the second season? Yeah, we kind of touched on it last week, and we really ultimately don't know, but I think it's going to be not a Vulcan, because we only have one Vulcan in Starfleet. And Vulcan is such a prominent place. Like, like so many dignitaries apparently go there. There's a couple Vulcans mentioned all the time in all the series, so... I think it's going to be some human who happened to be there for some diplomatic reason, probably. Well, you know, every single Star Trek has had a human captain. We've never had an alien captain on the flagship. Yeah, which that's why I was okay with Saru being captain. I know you weren't as big on it. No, not really. But I did read a very interesting theory on the internet, which apparently ties into the expanded universe, with which I'm unfamiliar. They think that the next captain of the Star Trek Discovery will be number one. Oh. Majel Barrett's character from Enterprise, who we find out in the books, is actually not human. Oh, really? I did not know that. Well, there's certainly no reason why they need to make her not human in the TV show, because the books are not canon. But apparently in the books, sometime before Kirk takes over for Pike, number one steps down as number one. Oh, is she she a Betazoid? Does she become Loxana Troy? Not that I know of. <laughs> and that's no, not what I meant. <laughs> no more than Mark Leonard has a twin brother. Uh, she also does not become the ship's computer, nor does she become an animated cat. Weird. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but apparently, like, her name is Number One, and I think in the book she might even be related to Robin Leffler. No way. I'm, oh, I, I, I haven't one. read these books, so I'm not quite sure, but... Yeah, there, in the book, she is no longer on the Enterprise, so this could tie in to explain where she went. She became captain of the Discovery. I really like that. And, uh, well, see, oh, it's right, it was Beta Cannon that you said. Uh, yeah. It would mean recasting Majel Barrett, though. Uh, they could do that. Well, I think they're going to have to, at least for the next episode. They're going to have to recast everybody who was on Pike's Enterprise. Do you think that Enterprise is only going to show up in the first episode, or might that be a season-long arc? Have to say it might make some periodic. I mean, it'd be cool if it was like side by side because you know we have this whole unexplored time of before Kirk was in charge. So it'd be really cool to have it there. But you know it's called Star Trek Discovery, so I think it won't be there all the time. Well, if some, it's there at all, much more. Well, somebody on Facebook, which again is not a, a source of authority, said that season two was going to reboot Discovery, and the only way that they could do that is to focus on an entirely different ship. At which point, it's no longer Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. No, I, I think if, if it's there much more than the first episode, it'll just be periodic. Like, we got to help the Enterprise do this thing. All right. Let's check in on each other every now and then. And they can do it like in Battlestar Galactica when Galactica... Pegasus. Pegasus. Pegasus, yeah. <laughs> Where Enterprise and... and uh, I'm also Pegasus. Enterprise and Discovery are together but separate. But we said that it's unlikely Season 2 will be episodic. It'll likely continue to be serial in nature. And this past season, the first episode set the tone 
for the entire season. It's unlikely that they would have the Enterprise show up in the very first episode of the second season and not have an effect on the Discovery that's going to last the entire season. Yeah, like, why would they do that? And remember, uh, Enterprise did have a distress signal. That's right. I, I mean, it seemed to be doing fine when we saw it, but we don't know what's going on on ship. Yeah. Still, whatever happens in the second season at the very beginning is probably going to continue to have ripple effects throughout the entire season. So that Enterprise showing up is not going to be a one-off. I know what it is. You think you know what it is? Oh, I totally know what it is. They're going to be like, your, your, your decks and ship look too new. We need to retrofit it back to the... <laughs> your what now? Your, your ship looks too new. We need to retrofit it with these old technologies to make it look... <laughs> I don't think that's it, Sabriel. I'm sorry. <laughs> Actually, though, um, apparently... The showrunners did say that when we do see New Enterprise, it will. They're doing their best to make it seem like the TOS era that we saw, but kind of updated. Whatever that may mean to you, they're going to try to keep as much of the original look as possible and still make it feel right. Well, you know, that's something I hadn't really considered. We've been so focused on the exterior design of the ships that now I'm thinking, what's the bridge going to look like? Because in TNG, in the episode Relics, when Scotty went on the holodeck and recreated the Enterprise with no letter after it, no A, B, C, or D, (laughs) it looked just like the TOS episode. And we saw that again when Mirror Universe Enterprise, on the TV show Enterprise, went aboard the Prime Universe Defiant. Yeah. And so what is the bridge of the Enterprise, of Pike's Enterprise, going to look like on Discovery, there are so many canon references to it looking a very specific way across multiple shows that for them to now redesign it now would be a major violation of canon. I, I think I think they'll just do their best to make it look like the original one, but made in 2018, 2019. That'll be interesting. It's going to have a uh, lot of primary colors. They, I, think, I know they, they are probably scared shitless <laughs> of uh, messing it up. Who? Uh, people who make who are going to be designing this for the new series. Ah, uh, and what sort of uniforms will Pike and his crew be wearing? Uh, you know what? That's also going to be cool, but it's also still ten years, so they could still wear Discovery type ones. That's what I'm thinking. Ten years is enough for them to undergo a uniform redesign more easily than a ship redesign. Yeah. So we've talked about what role the Enterprise might play, what role the captain might play, whoever the captain of the Discovery will be next. I'm also curious, bringing back a character we were talking about previously in this podcast, what role will Sarek play in the second season of Discovery? A lot of it's going to matter depending on uh, what's if Spock is on the Enterprise or not. His emotions and why maybe they had a falling out. But if, if they don't have much, he'll just probably be a possible occasional guide for Michael. Kind of like in the first season. Yeah. Because as the season went on, the first season of Discovery, it seemed like Sarek was playing a bigger and bigger role, to the point where he was even in the season cliffhanger. Uh-huh. And so I'm wondering if, again, I don't know how they can work this into canon with him being an ambassador, but I wouldn't mind, despite that, if they're able to work around it, I wouldn't mind seeing Sarek as a permanent member of Discovery. I know he never joined Starfleet, but I, I like him. <laughs> Yeah, he hasn't joined Starfleet, but he's a member of the Federation, so he could totally be hanging out there, being on Discovery as they're uh, being ambassadors to New Worlds. Like a diplomatic liaison? Mm-hmm. But still, he was so annoyed by Spock joining Starfleet, I can't imagine him then uh, going and do the also, same thing. Also true, also true, but you know, Spock didn't have to... Maybe it was the Starfleet part was the hard part, not the Vulcan Science Academy or whatever. And you know what? The Federation has a lot of rebuilding to do, so maybe a lot of the Discovery is going to be going back to these places and helping 
new mysteries open. You know, like there's going to be a lot of people who are going to try to take advantage of worlds that had trouble with the Klingons. I mean, whenever there's opportunity, there's always bad people trying to capitalize on it. But it's also an opportunity for the heroes to reveal themselves. For example, when Chief O'Brien went to Cardassia to help them rebuild, mm-hmm. which we never really got to see any of, and which would have been awesome. I know, right? But like they mentioned, industrial size replicators at some point. Ooh, we have no idea what that means. So they mentioned them. <laughs> Can't you just program in a brand new starship to replace the fleet that was destroyed by the Klingons, yeah. or buildings, or just building materials. Who knows? That's right, or planets, or crew. Yeah. <laughs> Just well, it's not. It's <laughs> just replicated. Cap. Yeah, I was gonna go to Hitchhiker's Guide references here. Mm. <laughs> we may already be not in the Star Trek timeline, but in the Hitchhiker's Guide timeline. You know, that's probably it. <laughs> I mean, we just saw a billionaire launch his Tesla into orbit. <laughs> I can't imagine anything more Douglas Adams. Well, yeah. Now he, he probably sent that car off so uh, Star Depart Fast can get a updated model of what Earth has been doing. I think that's exactly it. <laughs> Although I think I trust space travel in the Star Trek universe more than I do space travel in the Douglas Adams universe. I think I do too. <laughs> yeah. At least if you're trying to use an infinite probability drive. Well, there is that. <laughs> Although they both have space whales, except only one, I think, turns into a pot of plants. <laughs> oh, no, not again. <laughs> if only we understood. We did. That's true. That's true. <laughs> But this is Star Trek Discovery Podcast, not a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy podcast. Right, where the number is 49, not 42. <laughs> 47. Oh, that's right. <laughs> where the I can't even get my 40s right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, <You> see, <laughs> what more do we have to look forward to about the second season? Anything else you want to bring up? Uh, let's see. I wrote down, uh, see, the Klingon peeing two streams by Insignias, new captain, new five-year mission, George out, Lorel, and Tilly. Yeah. Got it, good. Just had to get that. Anyway. Oh, I was my recapping gosh. my notes in order. Yes, I, I can see that. Okay. <laughs> well, then, I think we have a lot to look forward to, a lot to reflect on. We have 15 episodes to rewatch while waiting for the new season. And, of course, we have over 30 years and 600 episodes of other Star Treks to watch if we get really bored. I mean, we could do a original... What if we did a TOS like uh, watch-along or, or talk about TOS episodes that have to do with... Discovery or something like that. Or you and I could record our own riff tracks to go with Star Trek Discovery. There you go. Yeah, I'm going to be out there in a few months. You've always been a little out there, Sabriel. Hi-o. I do love space. <laughs> but you mean you're going to come to Boston in two months for PAX East. Yeah, so maybe we can uh, figure out something there. It'd be pretty rad. If anyone has any ideas, please feel free to submit if you want to hear us blab for an hour on a topic. Yeah, email us at podcast at transporterlock.com. Tweet at us at transporterlock. Visit our website at transporterlock.com. Anything you want to reach out to us and let us know what you'd like to hear on the show or what you've liked that, that you've heard already. Yeah, please do. So we may be taking next week off from Transporter Lock because I have some business travel coming up, but rest assured that we will be back on the air come March. Yeah, All right, I'll talk to you then, Sabri. All right, bye. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com.